Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us around the globe, from bloody battles in the war's final days to an Irishman in the British Army, a Scottish family serving king and country, and trying to live with what one Kiwi experienced in the Solomon Islands. We begin this week with this from Jay Hulbert, the son of a GI. My father passed away a number of years ago. Recently, my mother moved into assisted living, and so me and my brothers got together to clear out their home. In one box, we found the letters that Dad had written home to his parents as a machine gunner in Patton's Third Army. Growing up, Dad never talked about the war very much. After my own service in the US Marines, he shared a few stories, but we could always tell he was leaving a lot out. Most of that he took to the grave with him, just like so many other vets. Dad's World War II career was both unusual and completely normal. He was drafted into the Army in 1942. After basic, he applied for and was accepted to the Army Specialised Training Programme. This was a programme set up to meet the Army's needs for specialists in engineering, medicine, veterinary medicine and dentistry by providing accelerated training at US universities, mainly land-grant schools. Dad found himself peeling potatoes on a train from California to New York, where he was enrolled in engineering courses. It was an accelerated course with the penalty for failure immediate transfer to the infantry. But Dad appears to have taken full advantage of living in New York, He complained about the cost of a night out, but that didn't stop him from seeing Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington and many other stars of the time. Sometime in early 1944, an officer walked into the classroom and announced, this programme is being terminated. You have the choice of going to dental school or the infantry. Dad said he couldn't see a career looking into mouths, so he made the worst decision of his life and chose the infantry. He was shipped out to England aboard the Queen Elizabeth and was eventually assigned to the 101st Infantry Regiment of the 26th Infantry Division. He served as a 30 calibre machine gunner, mostly with D Company, when they crossed the Channel to France. His letters get sparse at that time, but he did say on multiple occasions that the mud in France was worse than any other mud he'd experienced. The infantry are, of course, connoisseurs of mud. In late November, he was wounded by shrapnel in the right calf. His unit was advancing across a field when they began to take artillery fire. They ran toward a farmyard for cover, and he couldn't understand why he was unable to keep up with the other guys. Once under cover, he looked down and saw that his boot was full of blood. He was evacuated to a field hospital, then a hospital in England where he spent December and most of January 1945. 
He enjoyed England, liked the beer and the people, but thought that there were an awful lot of young men there who should have been in uniform. He said that the Americans and English got along okay, but the Canadians and English not as well. In February 1945, he returned to his company, where he stayed for the rest of the war. His letters get sparse again at this point. He's clearly a young soldier trying to keep his parents from worrying too much. After he was wounded, there was a lot of, it's just a scratch. But I remember, as a kid, asking him about the big, deep scar on his calf. In his letters, he talks about the weather, eating sea rations, while eating seas, he would be fine for two days, feel bad on the third, get sick on the fourth, and then repeat the cycle. He asked for a new lighter and for tea bags so he could make himself a hot drink on cold afternoons. When he received a package from home, the food was clearly the highlight. Dad never ever talked about buddies in his squad or platoon being killed or wounded, but that most certainly happened. When he joined his unit, he was a PFC ammo carrier in a machine gun squad. In pretty short order, he was a sergeant and squad leader. He said he wasn't promoted because of talent. As the war moved into the end phase, the American forces were moving fast. He said that they formed task forces of tanks with machine guns mounted on jeeps and infantry and trucks, moving quickly across Germany and eventually on into Austria and Czechoslovakia. Some of the towns were heavily defended. In one of the few of his letters that mentions combat, he talked about Germans, some as young as 11, fighting like devils. At one point, they came to a small German town in the valley that was decked out in white flags. He was in the lead jeep that day, but since the town was surrendering, his commanding officer elected to take the lead instead. The CO's jeep drove into the town, hit an anti-tank mine, and everyone in it was killed. The regiment then pulled back to a hill outside of the town and spent 24 hours calling in airstrikes and artillery until the town was completely levelled. Then they bypassed the ruins and moved on. In another town that had supposedly surrendered, several in his company were killed by a sniper. After the sniper was killed in turn, his company commander went to the mayor's office, where the captain, overcome by anger, beat the mayor to death. Then they packed up and moved on to the next town. As the war neared its close, the 26th moved on into Czechoslovakia. Dad said, at one point in late afternoon, when he was once more in the lead jeep of the lead task force, they stopped short of a wood. The officers debated moving on or not, but decided to hold where they were rather than risk being caught in the wood after dark. Dad and his squad dug in his machine gun next to the road, covering the exit from the wood. A group of German officers, including one with a big red stripe on his trousers, came marching out of the woods with a white flag. They ignored Dad's group of enlisted men and kept walking till they came to an officer to whom, the story goes, they surrendered a panzer division. Dad said the next day a huge German column moved past them to the rear, tanks, trucks and other vehicles. True? Maybe. But a great story. Dad wrote one letter on May the 8th about the end of the war. He said he felt basically nothing. He celebrated by taking his trousers off when he got into his sleeping bag that night. He said he'd hoped he'd get a furlough and be able to spend some more time at home, but assumed he'd be heading to the Pacific. In the event, the 26th ended up in Austria. Dad stayed there, working as a company clerk. He knew how to type, a skill suddenly more in demand than operating a machine gun. He remained in Europe until late 1945, when he was eventually shipped home via a slow army transport ship, 
train across the US before finally being discharged at Fort Lewis in Washington State in the early spring of 1946. Respectfully submitted, Jay Halbert. Thank you so much for that, Jay. Our next story this week is from Stephen Switzer. My dad, Mervyn Hungerford Switzer, went over the border from Dublin to Belfast to volunteer for the army. He found himself in the Sherwood Foresters and landed at Anzio with Mark Clark's 5th US Army. He was a radio operator and had a fortunate escape when his radio developed a battery problem and he was sent out of the line to fix it. While he was away, the Foresters were pushed into a salient and suffered heavy casualties. He was then posted to the Buffs where he had a good officer called Captain Black, who he saw literally cut in two by a Spandau. Shortly afterwards, my dad was blown into a shell hole and wounded badly enough to be medically downgraded. Sent to Caserta, he decided to learn German by talking to prisoners. He was also promoted to sergeant, but he was caught selling army blankets to Italian women and busted back down to corporal. After a spell as a translator in Yugoslavia, he was posted to Austria for denazification duties. There he learned to ski with his Austrian girlfriend, Irma Linda, and also saw the Cossacks passing through on their way to being handed back to the Soviets for death or the Gulag. He finally made it back to sergeant and finished his career back in the UK, drilling national servicemen. He died in 2003, and his ashes were scattered by the Land Warfare Hall in Duxford, a place he loved. Kind regards, Steve Switzer. Our next story is from Murray Souter. Hello, James and Al. Still loving the podcast. Keep up the excellent work. I started writing the story of wartime exploits to tell the tale of many uncles and aunts involved in the war effort. But in the end, I discovered two unsung heroes who, like many others, have gone unnoticed and forgotten. My father, James Souter, was one of ten children, eight boys and two girls. My mother... Margaret Mackay was one of six children, five girls and one boy. When war was declared, some of my father's brothers were already serving in the Royal Naval Reserve and were immediately called up for service. Those other brothers of military age quickly signed up too and eventually all eight of the brothers were serving. My mother was too young to sign up at the beginning of hostilities, but when she reached the required age she immediately reported for duty. Two of her sisters did the same and, like her, joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service. My uncles John, Alexander and Benjamin served in the Naval Patrol Service on minesweepers from the beginning of the war, with my father following them into the same service based out of Lowestoft. Surviving photographs show time spent in the Mediterranean, especially around Tunisia and Italy. John had the luck of being on shore duties on two occasions, when the ship on which he was serving was sunk. The next uncle to join up was Stuart, who went into the Royal Engineers and was stationed in North Africa. Uncle George followed, joining the Cameron Highlanders, but after Dunkirk he was transferred to the Green Howards. The youngest of my father's brothers were twins, Edward and Andrew. They also signed up for the Naval Patrol Service, and although Edward was accepted, Andrew was rejected due to poor eyesight. Andrew therefore joined the Pioneer Corps, and part of his service took him to Italy. Meanwhile, John Massey, the husband of my Aunt Anne, the eldest of the family, was a sergeant serving in the Seaforth Highlanders. On the other side of the family, my mother's eldest sister, Helen, served in the ATS at Army HQ in Edinburgh, 
while the next eldest sister, Jeannie, travelled south from Lossimouth to the Midlands to work in a munitions factory. My mother joined the ATS and served with an anti-aircraft regiment at the Royal Artillery in Britain before being transferred to Europe. She ended the war in Minden, Germany, as a telephonist with the occupying forces. Christina was the next sister to volunteer and she also went into the ATS. Totalling up the numbers, by the end of the war my grandparents on my father's side had eight sons and a son-in-law in the forces, generating the headline in a local newspaper, Lossy Family Provide Platoon. On my mother's side, my grandparents had three daughters serving in the forces and two daughters and a son working directly in support of the war effort. At the beginning of this story, I mentioned that there were two unsung heroes and I believe the true heroes of all this were my grandmothers. One can only imagine the anguish and worry that these two women must have suffered when stuck at home for years with little news of where their children were or what they were doing. Soldiers and sailors on active service usually only think about their own life and survival, but mothers with so many offspring away at the same time must have been a very strong character. How many times must they have seen the telegram boy cycling along their street and feared that he was heading for their door with bad news? During an air raid on nearby RAF Lossimouth, enemy aircraft dropped bombs on part of the town, and although not struck directly, my father's house was damaged by flying masonry and a large granite block crashed through the kitchen ceiling and embedded itself in the floor. This stone was too large to remove, so after the roof was repaired, my grandmother just painted the rock white like the rest of the kitchen and worked around it. This obelisk remained there, a visible reminder of the war, until after hostilities finished. That was from Murray Souter. Thank you, Murray. Next, we have this family story from Mark Grindley. Hi all. These are the contrasting stories of my Kiwi granddads. Father's father had a good war. He was a railway worker and therefore called into the engineering corps to spend the war in New Zealand, keeping the trains running. Mother's father had a bad war. When the war began, he was a small farmer who had been forced to give up rugby as a young man because he needed to take on a factory job on Saturdays to keep the bills under control. As a farmer, he was not part of the first call-up for the 2nd New Zealand Division sent to the Med. But then he was called into the 3rd New Zealand Division and sent to the Solomons mid-war. Back home after the war, he would not tell us any stories of his time there or anywhere in the war other than the feeling of immense relief when he was evacuated by seaplane. Other than that, he never talked about the war or his part in it. But it had a huge impact on his life. He had a battle with alcoholism, which he eventually won. That battle essentially stemmed from coming to terms with fear. Part of his victory came when he spotted a model kit for the Catalina flying boat in a toy shop. Completing that kit, which took pride of place in the living room, seemed to mark an end point for him in putting those memories behind him. There were no other war memorabilia in the house. What happened to him on those islands was the only time in his life that he felt fear, and that destroyed his idea of who he was as a young man. The stories you hear of men battling with what they did or what they saw are well known to us. I just wonder how many others have untold stories of their sense of self being shattered, of discovering, as my grandfather did, that he was afraid. Thanks for the pod, Mark Grindley.
Our final family story for this week comes from Richard Normington. Dear We Have Ways, Following Sean Scullion's episode with you about Spaniards in the British Army during the Second World War, I was reminded that my grandfather served alongside them as an officer in 361A Company of the Pioneer Corps in North Africa. I spoke to Sean for his project and provided extracts from my grandfather's diary. For the first months of the war, my grandfather was in a reserved occupation as a member of editorial staff on a newspaper, but finally joined the army as a private in 1941 and was commissioned via OCTU in 1942, aged 33. This is his recollection of his passing out parade. The colonel, his moustache so bristling and red hot that one could almost see the wax dripping from it, mounted a chair in the corner of the field and addressed the departing company. I wish I were coming with you, lads, he said. I'd like to have another go at the bloody Hun. Get your bayonet stuck into the sods, boys, and don't let me down. We were off to lay smoke in Liverpool, but the thought was there. We gave him a very hearty, very sincere cheer. My grandfather joined the Pioneer Corps and said this about his experiences. In the higher ranks, those with red tabs and the elegant young men in attendance on them, they were almost without exception very pleasant people, active Freemasons and elderly stalwarts of the Cavalry Club, appointed under the Old Pals Act, exuding the most captivating charm and evidently very grateful for the nice war they were having. The jokes in the mess were all, and this attitude pervaded the whole corps. Indeed, it is with most of us still. On being asked what I did during the war, I still have difficulty in remembering not to answer, oh, Pioneer Corps, I fear, with a winning little simper. Yet the work was probably as dangerous on average as that carried out by nine-tenths of the army, and certainly more varied and amusing. It didn't, however, include any of the navvying jobs that are always associated with the corps. My grandfather's full name was Hubert Archibald Noel Cole. In his journalistic work, he went by the name of Denton. His military friends called him Hank after his initials. His wife, Lucy, and daughter Susan knew him as Bill, and he used to send Susan short stories from wherever he was in the field, featuring intrepid dogs, Republican Spaniards, Vichy-sympathising French, and confused Britons. Yours faithfully, Richard Normington. Thank you, Richard. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. <laughs>